I consider it a great honor to have the, the guest speaker with us this morning who has joined us today. And I will tell you, this is something that um, he and I have actually been working on for some time uh, to get uh, his calendar and our calendar to work together. One of the things that I recognize as the pastor of this church is that I stand on the shoulders of some great men. And, uh, and those, who, those who serve this church before me. And, and I, I will tell you, uh, among, among the list of men that have pastored this church, uh, there, is, there is not, in my opinion, uh, a name that resonates with what God is doing in Christendom more than Dr. Mark Rutland. Amen. Um, what, what, what he does in training Christian leaders... Uh, really, it, it is without compare. And uh, I, am, I am honored to be an individual that has gone through uh, his institute uh, for leadership. And uh, I'm a better pastor because of the investment that he has made in my life. We are a better church for the investment that he has made in this church. And it just seemed right to have him back uh, and have him spend time with us. And so, uh, Dr. Rutland, I am, I am honored to have you here, sir. And, uh, and, and grateful that, uh, that God has seen fit to have you and your dear wife join us. And so come and uh, let's greet Dr. Rutland as he comes. Bless you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor, for that gracious introduction. I'm so glad my wife was here to hear that. <laughs> it's a joy to be back. Thank you very much. This, except for my father's funeral, which was here, and uh, Pastor Garvin was so gracious to accommodate my family on that. Except for that, uh, this is the first time I've been on the campus in 20 years, so it's wonderful to be invited back, and I want to thank you very much. I know that you all are so happy and proud of what the Garvins are doing here. This is a wonderful, wonderful pastoral couple, and I, I am honored with the invitation. And will you thank them also? Thank you. It's a joy to be with you. If you have your Bibles, if you'll take those and turn to the book of Zechariah, please. The book of Zechariah. I'm going to be reading from the King James Version. I'm not hung up on that, by the way. It's just in this passage, there is a word here, Canaan Hebrew, which is translated grace in the King James Bible, and I think that's the proper translation for it. Elsewhere, in some other versions, it's translated God bless it, which I guess is the blessing of God is grace, but it's an odd rendering, so I'm using the King James Bible. The kids at the colleges where I used to serve as president at two different colleges, and they would often say, why do you like the King James Version so much? I said, well, part of it is personal loyalty. You know, I, I went to high school with King James. <laughs> Jimmy, we called him Jimmy. He wasn't a king in high school. <laughs> part of it is I just like the, the flowery Shakespearean sound of the King James Bible. Which the, all the these and thous which offend so many people, I, I like that flowery sound. I, the, the modern translations are great. I don't have any bone to pick with them. That's hard for me to see Jesus come down to the Sea of Galilee and say to the disciples, what's happening, dudes? It, it's just me. It's just me. 
So I don't have any religious hang up on it though. I'm going to read from King James. You follow me and whatever cheap communist imitation you've got. <laughs> Come on, lighten up, lighten up. Just joking. I'm joking. All right, Zechariah 4. I wanted to give you time to find the book of Zechariah. Zechariah 4, 6 through 9. Then he answered and spoke unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is an Old Testament type. I know a modern preaching is not into typology much, but it's an Old Testament type for Jesus, the Prince of Restoration. This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain? Now, the word mountain in prophetic writing may mean all kinds of things. What it almost never means is mountain. It can mean a kingdom or a dominion or a force or a power. So, Zechariah writes, Who art thou, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, thou shalt become a plain. In, in other words, here's the revised Rutland translation. Who do you think you are, geopolitical forces of the present age? Who do you think you are, kingdoms and tyrants and dynasties and armies? Who do you think you are? When Jesus shows up, you'll be as flat as a tortilla. <laughs> Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone of it with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands shall also finish it. Now, if you'll put your hands on your Bible, and let's pray together. Padre bendito celestial, te damos gracias por tu presencia con nosotros en esta mañana, porque te necesitamos mucho. Gracias por tu presencia, gracias por tu amor precioso. Y especialmente por tu Espíritu Santo. Ayúdame, por favor, lléname con tu Espíritu Santo. Y úsame a su gloria si es posible. Glorifica tu nombre en este mensaje, por favor. Lord, we thank you. We praise you for your presence with us, for your sweet love, and for the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I yield myself to you as fully as I know how to do, and I'm asking you to use me. But I am so convinced that it is your property to commune with your children that if there's no way that you can speak through me, I believe you'll speak in spite of me and that you will overcome every barrier to divine communication, linguistic, cultural, generational, and that when we leave here today, we will say one to another, surely the Lord hath spoken unto us. In Jesus' mighty name, the strong Son of God, amen. Amen and amen. I was uh, raised to believe in the, something of the sanctity of words. The words mean things. The words are important. When a society suffers the loss or corruption or diminution of its functional vocabulary, to one extent or another, it loses its ability to think. Because irrespective of what you may think, we think in words not in pictures. So when we lose our words, our, our vocabulary shrinks, we may actually feel things. You may have a society that is deeply emotive, but it, it cannot express or even think those emotions. I can give you an example. 
The little fifth grade boy who thinks the brown-eyed girl next to him in class is the cutest little number that he's ever seen in his whole life. And he wants to tell her, I adore you, and I just want to be your boyfriend, and, and I just think you're the most wonderful person in the world. But he can't put it all into words, and so he punches her in the mouth. <laughs> that can actually happen to an entire society. One of the problems is that words get hijacked by contemporaneity. Words that meant one thing even in, our own, in one lifetime. It's not that words shift from the time of King James until the time of the 21st century. In one lifetime, in a matter of decades, words come to mean entirely different things. I, I, I know this is a mature audience this morning. Let me just ask you, how many of you can remember when gay meant happy? Will you raise your hand? I, I want gay back. Who stole gay? Young people have no idea what I'm even talking about now. When I was your age, Lincoln was in the White House. It hurts me when you laugh at me. When I was your age, gay had nothing to do with orientation. It dealt with disposition. I'd go to a party, and at 11 o'clock, my, my mom and I, my mother's here today, and my mom and I had a sort of a, a little game we'd play. She'd say, leave at 11 o'clock. So at 11 o'clock, I would call her and say, Mama, I, I know you said leave at 11, but can I stay on for a while? We're having a great time. And because she'd, it was just a game. She'd say, because you called me. Because you called me, she said, that's great. Go on and stay till midnight. Then she'd say, are you having a good time? I'd say, yes. Everybody here is gay. <laughs> she wasn't worried. We were just happy. See, young people think Don We Now Our Gay Apparel means Christmas and drag. <laughs> I was preaching recently to a high school audience in California, which is evidently where human vocabulary will ultimately be destroyed. And they were taken with the message. It was so wonderful to see a, such a youthful audience, so engaged. And afterwards, some of the boys came up to talk to me about their own future. And the first boy said to me, he said, Dr. Rutland, you are one bad preacher. In my lifetime, bad has come to mean good. The second boy said, you are the baddest preacher I've ever heard. Baddest is not even a word in the English language. The third boy said, you're, you're not bad. He said, you are one sick dude. <laughs> one can only sense my level of personal affirmation. I mean, early on, I set a sort of a life goal of becoming a really sick dude. The fourth boy, however, was not content with these low-altitude compliments. He said, you are not bad. You are not sick. He said, you are the OG of crunk. I have no clue. I called a friend of mine who pastors a hip-hop church in this state, actually, and I figured if anybody would know, he would know. I said, Tommy, somebody just told me I was the OG of crunk. What would that even mean? He said, Dr. Mark, it means original gangster. I said, so I'm the original gangster of crunk. He said, that's it. I said, 
Look, would, would I assume that that's a compliment? And he said, Dr. Mark, it means that you beat a Mac Daddy. I said, Tommy, look, explain it to me in different words. He said, I'm trying, Dr. Mark. He said, it, it means you beat a bomb. I said, Tommy, can we go in a little different direction? He said, look, it's so simple. It means you be off the chain. I just decided to leave it alone. Now, when that happens to any word, there is a certain level of tragedy attached. But when it happens to our functional biblical vocabulary, when it happens to the words which, with which we think about and then therefore talk about God, it can really damage our ability to communicate with the generation in which we live the character and nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. I believe that one of the words which has suffered in the current profligate disregard for, for vocabulary is the great biblical word grace. Because grace has come to mean almost everything, it's come to mean nothing. We use grace like agape mayonnaise. If you slop enough on, it'll make even rancid ham taste good. What, what does grace actually mean? It is remarkable, at least to me, that perhaps one of the most vivid images of grace in the entire Bible is here in the book of Zechariah. I tend, perhaps to my own embarrassment, but I tend to think of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, as being all about law and the New Covenant being all about grace. Therefore, it is intriguing to me that this beautiful image of grace is in an Old Testament minor prophet. The picture is this. The picture is of us on one side of an impregnable mountain, and on the other side is our Savior God, our Messiah, even this same Jesus. We know that we are saved. If there is any verse of Scripture that is sacrosanct in the evangelical community, surely it is that no one is saved by works lest any man should boast, but we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. Even the faith to believe for saving grace is a gift of God. The problem is that we tend to see that grace, saving grace, as an historical event. That is that we, that we receive grace by faith. We're saved. We're born again. Our sins are washed away. Our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now we've received grace. And that's what grace means, an event of grace. Now, saved, we turn and face this mountain. Because what we want is the mountain to be gone. We want a smooth place, a plain, as Zechariah says. Where the mountain gone, there can now be erected a temple, a tabernacle, if you will, where, as the book of Exodus says, I will meet with you. So what we want now is having received saving grace, we want to turn, see the mountain moved, and in its place, a tabernacle where we can meet with the Jesus who has saved us, but now seems distant and separated by this immovable mountain. Now, what is the mountain? It's different in every life. Prejudice, hatred, bitterness, 
resentment, unforgiveness, sin, drugs, whatever it is. It's different in every life. Some thing, some thing that just won't budge. We back up and run at it. We give it everything we've got. Shoulder to the wheel, nose to the grindstone. This year, I'll be a Christian if it kills me. The only problem is what? It'll kill you. If it doesn't put you right in a religious loony bin, rocking back and forth in a straitjacket and humming, Jesus loves me. Because the Bible won't move. The Bible tells us you can't move it. It says it is plain as it can be. It is not by might nor by power. But Jesus is a gentleman. He'll stand right there. You want to you hammer on that mountain, he'll stand right on the parapet of heaven with the angels at his elbows and watch you back up and run at that mountain. You say, here he comes again. Ooh. You say, that boy's going to hurt himself. Here he comes again. Oh, now that's going to leave a mark. So what happens is we treat the mountain we can't remove it in our flesh, so we treat it, respond to it in our flesh. Some, many of you know people like this, say, I can't move the mountain. I won't, in a kind of perverse idealism, they say, I won't go to church with that mountain in my life. It's a kind of, kind of uh, secular idealism. If I'm not perfect, I can't go to church. So they drop out. They quit. They leave church. They tell you they're angry at something. I don't like the preacher, I don't like the building, I don't like whatever it is. But the fact of the matter is, most of them are frustrated with their own inability to remove that mountain. So they'd rather stay home with the mountain than bring the mountain to church. Others take a different approach. They drape the mountain in camouflage. They live in denial. We get out of the parking lot of the car and the parking lot of spirit-filled churches all over America dragging our mountains behind us like a ball and chain, meeting other people dragging theirs. And we enter into a mutually agreed-upon covenant of suspended disbelief. Do you see my mountain? Nay, brother, thou hast no mountain. What about me? No mountain there. Let's go to church. So we claim to have no mountains, but in the spiritual domain above our heads, there is a veritable sierra of unclaimed and denied mountains. Others, and hopefully this is most of us, collapse at the foot of the mountain in our frustration and cry out to the distant Jesus on the other side, Lord, are you over there? I know I'm saved. I know I'm saved. Thank you for that. But this mountain won't budge. And so I quit. Do you hear me over there? I quit. And what we think is that from the other side of the mountain, we're going to get a tongue lashing because we have projected onto Jesus the face, voice, and personality of our high school football coach. So we think we're going to get a, a scolding. You big fat sissy. If you can't play in pain, you can't play on the Jesus team. Pull your socks up and hit it again. I played, uh, I played high school football. 
right at the end of the Civil War. And I wonder if there's any men in here old enough to remember. We, we didn't have platoon football. We didn't have offensive and defensive teams. Anybody remember that? There were only 18 boys in the high school. If you wanted to play, you just put your helmet on, play till you die. And I played quarterback on offense. On defense, I played free safety. And I dreaded our inter-squad games more than any interscholastic game I ever played because the coach's son was the most vicious and lethal runner that I've ever even attempted to pull down. If Bob got through the line into the deep secondary, he came at you all helmet and knees and demons. And I was a gentleman. I didn't want to impede Bob's path to glory. I would have escorted him into the end zone. But Bob would chase me. He didn't want to just knock me down. He wanted to knock me down and cleat me in the face. Finally, I said to him, what's up with you? What's the deal on this? I, I've tackled bigger guys than you. You're not even the fastest person in our own backfield. What's the deal? He said, you want to know the deal? Come home with me after school today. Well, that shocked me. Nobody went home with Bob. Not only was Bob a vicious and lethal runner, he was a vicious and lethal human being. As far as I knew, Bob didn't have a friend in the world. So I went home with him to our head coach's home after school. We went into the garage, and in one of those pull-down garage doors, about waist high all the way across, it looked like somebody had been hitting with a sledgehammer. He said, there's your answer. He said, when I started the sixth grade, my football coach dad strapped a helmet on my head and made me bend over at the waist and run into that garage door with all my might. And he said, I've hit it every day, 365 days a year, birthday, Christmas, New Year's Day, no exception. Every single day, I've run into that garage door with all my might. And he said, any day I didn't hit that door hard enough to please my dad, he'd lash my legs with a braided whistle strap till I hit it again. Is that your Jesus? If that's your Jesus, your Jesus is my devil. Behind us, lashing our legs with the braided whistle strap of some kind of Protestant works righteousness. Pray more. Tithe more. Give more. We struggle with it in the ministry. We struggle with it in the ministry. Preach better. But Jesus is not your high school football coach. So we cry out, defeated and broken at the foot of this impregnable mountain. Not just a mountain, an escarpment that stretches from pole to pole. We can't get around it, we can't get over it, we can't tunnel under it, and we collapse. I quit. Do you hear me over there, Lord? I quit. What do you have to say to that? And from the other side of the mountain comes the most astonishing response. Good. That's what I've been waiting for. Stand back. And then it says one of the most re remarkable passages in the whole Bible. It says Jesus shouts. We don't see very many images of that. Jesus shouts. What does he shout? Do better. Work harder. Obey the law. Be holy. None of those. What he shouts is grace, grace unto it. 
He doesn't even shout at us. What He shouts at is the mountain. When we do everything we can do to remove the mountain, when we finally give up on it and say, it's not by might, it's not by power, Jesus says, it's by my Spirit, and my Spirit is the Spirit of grace. But when we take that onto ourselves, what happens is we lose grace. It hemorrhages out of our lives. And we become, can I coin this phrase? We become disgraceful. We become disgraceful people, joyless, powerless, empty, angry, critical, bitter, judgmental, legalistic. We cannot be gracious because we have no grace. One cannot give away what one doesn't have. When we are graceless, we are walking in manifest proof that the reservoir of grace in our own lives has, has gone dry. They're, they're disgraceful churches, whole churches that lack grace, that live in criticism and bitterness and anger and judgment. I was preaching one Sunday at a church. I'll never forget this. You preach, you know, Pastor, you preach under what you think is some level of anointing, and you go out into the lobby to shake hands. It's usually a tactical mistake, by the way. <laughs> this man came up to me, and he was so angry, he was quivering. You ever see people that are so angry they can hardly talk plain? He said, I'm leaving the church. I said, Why? He said, because you're a liar. I said, I am. He said, you lied in the sermon today. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you mentioned a battle that happened in World War I. And he said, you said that battle happened in 1917. He said, I happen to be something of an expert in American military history. And I know that battle didn't happen until 1918. He said, a man that a lie about a thing like that would lie about anything. And he said, I'm out of here. I said, well, bye. <laughs> well, I mean, really, adios. I cannot fix that for you. That's disgraceful. But let me tell you about another man in a church I pastored, an attorney. Listen to this. This man was so full of grace. Every sermon I preached all the years I was at that church, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every sermon I preached, this lawyer would come up to me and say, oh, oh, he said, that's the greatest sermon I ever heard in my life. Now, look, I was born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I know intellectually, I know that nobody can preach the definitive Christian masterpiece three times a week, year after year after year after year. I know that intellectually, but I like that lawyer lying to me. When I came out of the pulpit, I was looking for that attorney. Look, to grace people, to build them up. I know what some of you are thinking. We can't do that with Pastor Garvin. That's the greatest sermon. His ego will pump him up. Go on and pump. There'll be some mean old lady in the lobby with a pen. She'll pop him. I, 
Allison and I have now been in the ministry for 50 years. This summer, we'll be married 50 years and in the ministry for 50 years. This summer. Those applause are all for you, baby. They're all thinking to themselves, how she did this. But after 50 years in the ministry, what I've come to the conclusion is this. The entire race of Christianity is only divided into two tribes. There's pumpers and poppers. The pumpers are full of grace. The poppers, the grace have all drained out. We are, we are disgraceful in our families. We disgrace our children, criticize them, pick at them, angry, judgmental. When I was the president at ORU, there was a man that came to see me. You know, thousands of students, I didn't know them all, but I happened to know this guy's son. He was a leader in the campus. He was a Christian presence, and he was one of the leaders of one of our many worship teams. Great kid. This guy said, I've come to talk to you about my son. I said, I know your son. What a wonderful boy. He said, yes, yes, yes. I said, no, he is. I'm telling you, he's much loved and admired on this campus. And he said, I know, but he said, I need your help with something. I said, what is it? He said, it's that earring. He said, I look at my son, I can't see anything but that earring. He said, he's driving me crazy. I've asked him, pull the earring. He won't take the earring out. It's standing between us. I said, sir, an earring? He's a wonderful boy. He said, I want you to make him take that earring out. That's all I can see when I look at my son. Now look, I'm old. Boys wearing earrings, I confess, it's hard for me. Am I the only one? You ever just want to jerk down? Take that out of your ear and give it to your sister. <laughs> On the other hand, how big of a deal is that? So I called the boy in my office yes, the next day. I said, guess who was in my office yesterday? He said, I know. I said, I wonder if you know what he wanted to talk about. He said, yes, the earring. I said, oh, he, he's being so petty about this. He said, it's petty, Dr. Mark. I said, it's so selfish and petty and, and disgraceful and critical to let something like an earring stand between you and somebody that you love. He said, it's stupid. I said, yes, it's stupid. He said, oh, I know where you're headed. <laughs> I said, look, son, somebody in this relationship has got to be the grown-up. I met your dad. And you know what? That boy became a hero of mine. He said, it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing, and my father is everything. He took that earring out and laid it on my coffee table, and he walked out. That's grace. That's grace. We disgrace our spouses. We are disgraceful. It's, it is disgraceful how some Pentecostal men treat their wives. It's disgraceful. Look, guys, let me help you. When your wife walks in with that new dress on, she says, look what I bought today. She bought that at the mall. She's modeling that for you. She says, look at this dress I bought today. She didn't want you to peer over the top of the sports page. How much did that set me back? I have to confiscate your credit card. Let me tell you something else, too. Make no reference to Abdullah the tent maker. 
go not this way. This way leadeth to destruction. There's a bunch of stuff that's funny in Seinfeld, and it isn't going to work in your house. No, she's modeling that dress for you. She says, look what I got at the mall today. You throw that newspaper aside and jump to your feet and say, whoa. <laughs> Baby, look at you. You look like a million bucks in that dress. You wear that on Wednesday night, and we're going to be late to prayer meeting. Now, that's what she wants. That's grace. <laughs> Girls, listen to me. Let me talk to you a little bit. Your husband is like God in one way. I know many of the women say, this, this is what I came for. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, the Bible says that God has numbered every hair on your husband's head. So has your husband. And he does not need you to remind him that the number is diminishing decade by decade. <laughs> I travel a lot. When I leave the house, my beautiful wife puts her little hands on my cheeks and she says, you are the sexiest, handsomest man I've ever seen in my life. Now, look, look, look up here. I live in the real world. But two great blessings of grace in life is a lawyer and a wife who will both lie to you. We disgrace our churches. We disgrace our families. You know what's the worst thing? We disgrace ourselves. We stare into the full-length mirror of self-evaluation and we steal from the hand of God the right to judge ourselves. And we look into that mirror and we loathe what we see. Even superficial things. What happened to you? Where did your hair go? And whence cometh this fat? We judge ourselves superficially. We, we disgrace ourselves over our past. We hold our own past over our head when the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel has forgotten it. Do you ever hear anybody say this? Maybe you've said it. I, I hope if you have, you'll never say it again. Do you ever hear people say this? I know God has forgiven me, but I cannot forgive myself. I know this will sound hard the way I'm going to say it, but who do you think you are? If God judges you and acquits you and washes you in the blood of our Savior, even His own Son, and He says, I have buried your, sea, your sin in the sea of forgetfulness, and for you to say, but I'm a better, bigger, more righteous judge than thou, how arrogant is that? That's disgraceful. We disgrace ourselves. We disgrace ourselves on a daily basis. Just the stuff that happens in life. Just life is real. This is not, this is not real Christianity. You see that, don't you? I mean, I've never known anybody commit a really venal sin in a Sunday morning worship service. This is not real. This is where we gather and try to find the grace enough to make it through real. Real is Tuesday morning when nobody's looking at you. 
and you slam your own hand in the hood of your car, in the, in the door of your car. That's real. How do you respond to that? Oh, I'm going to get a lawyer. Ford Motor Company's going down. They're going down. <laughs> or you can blame God. Well, you've done it to me again. This is what I've come to expect. Or you can blame yourself. Oh, what a rogue and peasant slave am I. <laughs> or you can lift that mangled paw aloft and say with Jesus, Grace be unto thee. Allow Jesus to give you grace for the reality of your humanity and grant it to yourself. Life is real. Look, I haven't been here in 20 years. I'm very grateful to both of the people here that remember me. <laughs> but because you're here, I want to tell you the funniest church story I've ever heard in my life. You, you do realize, don't you, that the funniest stuff in the world happens in church, don't you? And do you realize the funniest churches in the world are spirit-filled? I don't believe we ought to even ordain anybody for the full gospel ministry who doesn't have a sense of humor because some goofy stuff happens in spirit-filled churches. But here is the piece de resistance. I have a good friend who pastors in another Pentecostal denomination, not yours, in another Pentecostal denomination. He told me, and I don't know if this story is true or apocryphal. He's in the ministry, so what can I say? But he said that he invited an evangelist to preach at his church. And this lady in the church who was one of these self-proclaimed prophetesses, I don't know, do you have any of those? No? Oh, we'll send you some. <laughs> Into every life a little rain must fall. You know, these prophetesses, they've all got the red phone to heaven. You know, nobody can hear from God but them. So my friend said, she came to him and said, Pastor, the Lord has revealed to me this evangelist ought not to be in the church, ought not to come. He said, well, the Lord hadn't revealed it to me. Exactly what he should have said. The Lord hasn't revealed it to me, and until God reveals it to me, he's coming. I'm not asking you to affirm me. I'm not asking for you to attend. I, I'm just telling you until God speaks to me, he's coming. Well, she wouldn't leave well enough alone, would she? They never do. He said that the evangelist started preaching the first night. He'd been preaching about five minutes. And that lady stepped out in the center aisle and raised her hand up and pointed in the evangelist's face and said, Whoa, thou thinkest that thou art a humdinger. But saith the Lord, thou art not a humdinger. Thou art a dinger, saith the Lord. I said, Pastor, what did you do? He said, Dr. Mark, I froze at the controls. He said, nothing in my life, experience, or education had prepared me for that moment. He said it was the evangelist that saved the day. He said he looked at her for a moment, and then he just put his head over on the pulpit and burst out laughing. <laughs> and when he did... A little laughter over here, and then some over here. Then the musicians started laughing. That's usually where the problem is. And, the <laughs> and you know, laughter in a church will feed itself. It's just laughter and building and building and building. And he said, when, just as that laughter reached a crescendo, he said, that lady slammed her Bible shut, 
comes out, and when she got under the exit sign, she said, I'll never darken the doors of this church again. He said, Dr. Rutland, it was the hour of deliverance. <laughs> Look, here's the weird thing. In many ways, that old lady was right. Thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. All humans are dingers. When we can get in touch with this, everybody's always wanting a word from God. And they rush up to me in airports, usually after I'm on Christian television. That brings them out. Rush up to me in the airport with this deer in the headlights. Look, do you get these people? Do you have a word for me? Dr. Ellen, is that you? Do you have a word? I always want to say, yes, read your Bible. But everybody's always wanting a word from God. Okay, here, I've got a word for you. Look up here. Everybody in these two sections. Look right up here. Thus saith the Lord, thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. Everybody here, look here. Thou art dingers too. Everybody over here, pastor, you look up here. You need this. Thou art dingers too. Thus saith the Lord, thou art not humdingers. Thou art dingers. Thou hast done dinger stuff. Thou art not finished. But, saith the Lord, I see thee in thy dingerness, and I love thee just the same. Isn't that wonderful? That's grace. That's grace, and that's amazing. Look, that still brings us to this issue. What about the mountain? What about the mountain? The liberal humanist says God doesn't care about the mountain. He says grace is a wink and a nod. There, there, you've killed a hundred people. Boys will be boys. But that condemns us to the destructive presence of the mountain. The legalist says God will finally make you strong enough to remove the mountain. But that condemns us to failure because it's not by might and it's not by power. Real grace says, I want that mountain out of your life, but I will do it myself. Listen to this verse. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall finish it. Isn't that shockingly New Testament? He who hath begun a good work in you shall perform it. God will finish the work. That's grace, and that's amazing. Now, let me close with this. You've been very patient. The last thing that anybody says to you, that's, that's important. The last thing anybody says to you. What, what if you came to the end of the Bible? The, you got to the, read the whole Bible, and you came to the last verse. And what if it said, I'm sick of the bunch of you? No, I mean, is it just me, or does that, that feel little discouraging, wouldn't it? Or what if it said, I'm going to let some of you come to heaven and some of you go to hell, but I'm not going to tell you how I choose. That's scary, isn't it? Or what if the last verse said, April Fool's? (laughs) 
everything up to here was just a kind of a God joke. You're all done for. That'd be, am I right? That'd be scary, wouldn't it? But what if you get to the end of the whole Bible? What's the last verse, the last verse in the Bible? God's final answer. He says, after the creation, after the fall of man, after the, after the destruction of all that humanity can cause, after the coming and rejection of the prophets, after the coming of Messiah, after His death, crucifixion, passion, and resurrection, after His ascension, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and after all of the great church history for 2,000 years, I've still got one thing left to say. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. That's how the Bible ends. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Be with you, not against you. God is not the problem. He's the answer. He's not opposed to us. He's not down on us. He's not angry at us. He says, my grace, which I have manifested and incarnated through Jesus Christ, my son, is with you all all the time, all the way. And that's amazing. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes all over the house? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We praise you for your grace. Wonderful, munificent, amazing. We simply lack the vocabulary to tell you how amazing we find this grace. Now, with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, all over this great church, if you would just say, Dr. Mark, will you pray for me? I don't know where it happened. I don't know how it happened, but I've become so graceless. How did I get so angry and bitter and judgmental and critical? I don't know, I don't know how that happened to me. I don't want to be like this. Will you pray for me that God will so replenish grace in my life that I may give grace to others? Say, look, I, I know my family needs grace. They need grace from me, and they're not getting it. Employees need grace from me, and they're not getting it. Colleagues need grace from me, and they're not getting it. But I can't give what I don't have. If you say, Dr. Mark, please pray for me. Please pray for a fresh infusion of grace in my life because my reservoir is way low. If that's you, then you lift your hand right where you are. Sure, sure. So many, so many. It, it, it happens so easily. It happens. Life does it. Life just pounds the grace out of us. Heavenly Father, you see their hands. My hands raised, all of many here. Lord, pour your grace within us. Come, Holy Spirit. Spirit of grace, come, Holy Spirit. Fill us fresh with grace. Pour it into us. Infuse us with grace. Now take your hands down, if you will, but keep your eyes closed. Others that would say, Dr. Mark, my issue is grace for myself. There is a mountain in my life. I don't care. I don't want you to tell me what it is. I don't need to know. You and God both know. But you say, there is a mountain in my life. And this morning, as never before in my life, I want to surrender it to God. I want to yield it up to Him. And say, Lord, I trust you. The mountain is yours. If that's you, then you quickly lift your hand and take it right back down. Sure. 
Oh, hundreds. Sure, sure, sure. Now, as I pray out loud, you just pray something like this where you are. Lord, I yield the mountain to you. I know my strength is insufficient. It's not by might. It's not by my power, but by your spirit. I yield it. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Take this mountain, every mountain. Grace my life. In Jesus' name, the strong Son of God. Amen and amen.